take you on a little journey in the New Testament this morning, and um, part of it, where we're beginning, is kind of really interesting to me because it's um, something that might surprise you about Jesus. And um, I can kind of relate to him on some levels in regards to this. In Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, Jesus found, and it's also found in in the Gospel of Matthew, but uh, this passage is about Jesus' life and ministry. And so, uh, starting with verse 1, here's what it says. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him, were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. This is the Son of God, the creator of the universe. He goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, where he grew up, where his dad taught him to be a carpenter, where his brother's all grew up in his sisters, half-brothers, half-sisters. They all grew up there together. And Jesus comes back as a full-grown man. He's, he's now walking in his ministry. He goes to his hometown, and they're like, Wait a minute. We know you. Your dad taught you to be a carpenter. We know your brothers and your sisters. Like, come on. And, and what... What the problem is at his hometown is a twofold problem that Jesus faced. The first issue is the issue of acquaintance. They knew him all too well. They'd seen Jesus grow up as a little boy. They're probably still thinking of him as a 16-year-old working in his dad's carpentry shop. I, I relate to that. A year ago, we had a family rebellion, I mean reunion, <laughs> with all my brothers and my sisters and nieces and nephews and some aunt, my aunt came and uh, so there were like, I think there were 50 of us or something like that, including kids, and, and, and so we were just rocking and rolling, but my oldest brother, idiot, that's his name, <laughs> idiot Raymond Simon. He asked me to preach on Sunday morning to the family. There's two places you really don't want to ever preach. One is to your family, and the second one is to a a group of pastors. Both are bad places. So anyway, uh, you know, my sister actually said this to me. It's really hard for me to listen to you because I just think of you as being 16 and stupid. That's what Jesus 
was facing right here in his hometown. You know, Jesus had this, I want you to notice what this says, that they were all astonished by Jesus' teaching and knowledge, but this astonishment was not a good surprise, but rather an incredulous surprise. We know your family. They're all humble and uneducated people, and we're of the same fabric. We are of the same good stock as your parents and your brothers and your sisters and your aunts and uncles. So why are you coming into our synagogue and being a show-off with everything that you know? That's what they were saying to Jesus. They're telling them, you know what? You may be smart, you know, and you may be really smart, but we really know who you are. And the problem with that is that there's this bias towards Jesus. There wasn't anything he could say or do to get beyond the picture that they had of him as a 16-year-old learning carpenter skills from his dad in the shop. Which brings us to the second issue they had with Jesus. He was never going to be a rabbi, a teacher, a preacher. He would always be a carpenter, a blue-collar worker. And they would never be able to see him as anything more than that. that and therefore, they would never accept that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. Not in his hometown. Not with his relatives. Matter of fact, his brothers didn't come to faith until Jesus was resurrected. Even though they heard about all the miracles that he had done, heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead, fed 4,000 to one hand and 5,000 to another, and those were just the men, that he did all these miraculous things they still did not believe that he was the Messiah until he was raised from the dead. That's a, that's a tough hill to slug up. And, and, you know, there's this effect that it has because it says that Jesus couldn't do any mighty works. <laughs> that's crazy, right? Their unbelief kept them from seeing Jesus as the Christ. He would always be Jesus the carpenter. He would always be Jesus my big brother. Therefore, Jesus had to move out of his hometown in order to do what God's called him to do. Now, the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to me? Is Jesus a carpenter's son? A carpenter? Is he just a historical figure? Is he just somebody that I know from a distance? You know, one of, one of the greatest things that happens in this church right here, this church, is what's taking place in behind those three doors with the little signs on them. We have the nursery, and then we have our kids' ministry going on there, and then we have our youth group. And it's, it's when, a, when one of these kids or a bunch of them, they give their life to Christ. They come into relationship with Jesus and they grow in their spiritual understanding, their spiritual growth going on in the lives of these kids and they're growing in stature. In other words, as they're growing to know God, they're growing up. They're going off to elementary school, then middle school, then high school. Then they go off and they get a a second education at college, they get married, and they come back, and they're raising their kids, and they come back to church after they've been gone for four years, and they step in, and they start doing ministry in the church. They start to be leaders in the church. That 
is the greatest joy that we could have as a church is watching this happen take place right in front of our eyes. But on the other hand, when we have kids that grow up in the church and at, at the end of their high school years and their college years, Jesus has become so familiar to them. Jesus has become just this historic figure. He is, just, he is no longer the Son of God. He's a carpenter. And that's all they'll see him as. And Jesus has no effect on their life because of the unbelief that they've swallowed. The unbelief that has crept into their hearts and their minds. They no longer understand who God is. And here's the deal. Is that you may be at that place. You may be at the place in your own life where where you just see Jesus right now as being a commonplace historical figure. Or maybe you're going like, I'm worried about my kids getting to that place. To where they really don't step into this awesome relationship that we can have with the creator of the universe. Everything is just becoming ho-hum and fiddle-dee-dum. There's nothing exciting about Jesus anymore. He's just commonplace. Well, what I want to do is take you uh, through some, um, three, three places in the uh, Gospels where we meet three different people who have had their lives radically changed by Jesus for eternity. So we'll step into it. The first one is found in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 11. And it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this man... Uh, It was not this man's sin or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, How were you? How were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. And said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. This is one of those passages in the Bible that should make you kind of scratch your head a little bit and wonder about what God does. Because right at the beginning of this dialogue or this story, John lets us see the fact that this man was born blind And he was born blind for the purpose of God's glory. That should rattle your cage just a little bit. To think that God is going to bring this little baby, like my little granddaughter, back there trying to go to sleep. Give me a few more minutes, I'll get you there. Along with some of you other people. Born, born blind. Unable to see from birth. 
God did that. <laughs> that, that should shake your... You're going like, wait a minute. God is good and loving. How could God be so good and loving and, and do that to a man just for his own little experiment? Well, let me tell you, we're going to get to that in a minute. But it is amazing because there are things that maybe go on in your own life or maybe there's some deficiency in your life. Maybe you have some kind of something that's crippling that, that um, makes you, uh, let's see, how would Jesse say that? Handicapped. You're, you feel handicapped. And maybe you're mad at God because you feel handicapped. But maybe God has a bigger purpose for you than what you're looking at. So here we have this man, and he's, he's blind at birth, and he's begging. Now, more times than not, these people sat close to the temple because people's hearts were usually a little more in tune with God when they went into the temple. They usually got a little bit more cash in their box as they were begging. And so here he is begging, and Jesus is having a dialogue with his disciples because they're asking, was it the man or his parents that sinned? And Jesus said, it wasn't either. It was for the glory of God that this man was born blind. And here's how it works out. And it's kind of like, okay. Now, <laughs> this, this blind guy, he's just minding his own business. And Jesus all of a sudden spits on the ground and makes this mud. And he packs the man's eyes with it. For the primary purpose to evoke hope and expectation in the man. If you were to read this whole passage, you would find out that when the man's being questioned by the spiritual leaders of the day, he would say to them, I was born blind. You tell me one person in all the history of the world that was born blind that had their sight given back to them. Because that never happened. Obviously, there were some people who had an accident or something happened to where they went blind but somehow they were healed and received their sight back. But nobody had ever heard of a man being born blind and then getting sight. That was never happened. That had never happened. And here's the first time it happens. And Jesus packs the mud on his eyes, then tells him to go to Siloam, the pool, and wash it off. And, and to me, I'm just going like, this is crazy. But what it did for this man is it evoked hope and expectation. The latent power of faith had to be stirred. The, the blind man, the sufferer, made a conscious of the fact that it was Jesus whom he could not see, but whom he could heal and who was the healer. So the divine hand touched the sightless eyes, leading the blind man to expect a cure. And hence, his prompt obedience to the Lord's command. We have two things at play here that we need to take note of. First, what Jesus and the blind man did not do. Neither one of them did this. And this is unusual. Jesus did not ask the blind man a question. He really didn't interact with him except for to give him a command to go and wash the mud off his eyes at the pool of Siloam. So Jesus wasn't saying anything to him. On the other hand, the man didn't say anything to Jesus. He didn't say, hey, are you Jesus of Nazareth, the healer? Can you heal me? He did not have that in his mind because, once again, he's never heard of someone who's being born blind from birth ever receiving their sight. So there was no expectation that this Jesus of Nazareth 
to do that for him. Totally unexpected. And yet all of a sudden, here it is, this mud pack on his eyes. And Jesus didn't ask him, here, I'm going to put this mud pack on your eyes. Do you really want to see? I'll put the mud pack on your eyes. You go to the pool of Siloam, wash it off, and you'll see. Jesus didn't tell him that he was going to see. He just put the mud pack on his eyes and said, now go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Now, here, here's the, this is what I like. This is really cool about this. The next thing we need to notice is that the healing was started by Jesus, but brought to completion by obedience. Jesus packed the mud with spit on his eyes and then gave him the command, go and wash at the the Siloam pool. Now, if the guy was like, all right, I'm going to take a shortcut. I'm not going to go all the way to the Siloam pool. I'm just going to go over here to this little place where I know there's some water and I'm going to wash it off. I don't think he would have been healed. I think he had to obey the command of Jesus explicitly. He had to do exactly what Jesus told him to do in order for him to find healing, in order for him to get his sight. And he might have gone like, you know what, that's too much trouble for me, a blind guy, to try and find my way all the way to the pool of Siloam and wash this mud off my face. He says, Jesus is gone. I'm just going to walk a little ways around the corner and I'm going to scrape the mud off my face. I'm going to go back to the place where I was sitting with my box and I'm going to continue to beg for money. That's not what he did. He heard the command of Jesus. He obeyed the command of Jesus. And because out of the hearing and out of the obedience, then he received. Out of the hearing, he acted in obedience and he received. Huh. That is just absolutely like mind-blowing because we can do the same thing. The healing was complete. All he had to do, he followed the command and he experienced healing. And the healing was absolutely 100% complete. And, and the funny part is, is that he gets, he gets grilled by the, the uh, leading spiritual leaders of Israel. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, they're grilling him like, are you sure you're the blind guy that you were blind by birth? Hey, I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. I was blind at birth. I'm the guy. How did you get healed? I already told you. Jesus put mud on my eyes, told me to go wash. I washed, and now I see. I'm the guy. We don't believe you. Get your parents in here. Was this boy blind? Yeah, he was blind at birth. How did he get healed? And they're going like, hey, he's of age. You ask him how he got healed. We, we he was blind at birth. Now he sees. We don't know. Ask him. They didn't, want, they didn't want to get caught up in the political arena of what was going on. And so they deferred back to his son. And he's like, look, what is it? You guys want to become disciples of Jesus too? That really made him mad. And so they kicked him out. They kicked him out of the synagogue. They said, we're done with you. And he's like, I don't care. You know what? This Jesus made me see. And then look what happens in verses 35 through 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, You have seen him, and he is who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The command 
the obedience, the reward, and what happens? Spontaneous worship breaks out. That's the way it should be. Every time Jesus shows up, there should be spontaneous worship breaking out in our lives. And it was for the glory of God that a man was born blind who would receive his sight. But more than that, he believed, he confessed, and he worshipped. That's what happens when Jesus gets involved in a hopeless situation. Faith and obedience produce worship, which leads to guess what? Holiness. Yep, we're still there. We're still stuck on holiness. You see, this man's life absolutely was radically changed by an encounter with Jesus Christ, and he started to live a holy life. Jesus wants to have an encounter with you, so you will have a holy life. So you'll know what it means to live in the holiness of Christ. Let's move on to our next guy, found in Luke 18. As Here's how what, what it says. As he, that's Jesus, drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Now, here's the thing. We have the same problem, but we have a different situation with a different approach. Jesus does something totally different here. This is a a totally different kind of scenario. Um, Historically speaking, there was the old city of Jericho, which you might remember, Joshua. How many of you here know the story of Joshua? Fought the battle, Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Right. And he walked around, and what happened to the walls of Jericho? They came a what? A tumbling down. Right. There would never be another city built where those walls fell down. God made a promise of that. So what did they do? <laughs> they went next door and built a city next to it. And so there's old Jericho and there's new Jericho. And so this, it's called Beggar's Row, where they kind of hung out between old Jericho and new Jericho. Lots of beggars in there, lots of blind guys. I want you to understand that there wasn't just one blind guy here. There wasn't just one person in need here. This was a major thoroughfare. This was a major highway. So anybody that had to beg for a living had their hind end parked between old Jericho and new Jericho. And so there's all these people who are in need, and Jesus walks by the people who are in need. Totally different then the last blind guy, who was born blind, Jesus stopped and did something for that guy. Without that guy ever asking for anything from Jesus, Jesus just did it for him. It was a total surprise. It was serendipitous, as you would say. Then it all of a sudden just came out of nowhere. But here, now Jesus is walking by, and there's a great crowd going with Jesus. And this guy hears the noise and says, hey, what's happening? Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth? The healer? 
He's going like, this is my chance. I get to do it now. I'm, I'm going to take a chance. Hey, Jesus, son of David. How did he know that? Have mercy on me. Shut up. Son of David, have mercy. And Jesus stops and says, okay, bring that boy up here. And so he brought him up. And so totally different than the last blind guy that we just looked at. Now Jesus has got this other blind guy. Look what Jesus says to him. What do you want me to do for you? There's the question. That's the question. That's the question that we all hear. Now, you know, if it were us, okay, I'm coming, standing before Jesus, can't see anything. It's like midnight all the time. Dark. Duh. Jesus, hey, you know, like, I'd like my sight back. That's the obvious answer, right? Well, that's what you and I would say. And indeed, that's what this man said. But that is not always the answer that Jesus gets when he asks the question. What do you want me to do for you? There are a lot of people, even back then, and maybe even today, in our world, who would be in the same situation that would go like, well, you know, since that accident where I lost my sight, um, I couldn't work, I couldn't provide for my family, so I'm absolutely bankrupt. I've lost everything. I had to dip into my savings And after I was into the savings for a while, I couldn't pay the mortgage on my house. My house is totally gone. I lost my car. I have to walk everywhere. I am totally 100% bankrupt. My kids, you know, they're, they're also begging as well. My wife, she's out on the street begging as well. And we're just a family of beggars now. And so, Jesus, what I really like you to do for me is to kind of restore my finances. You know, bring me back to where I was with interest. That would be really good as well. And then if you could set me up so that I could live really comfortably for the rest of my life, that would be awesome. That's what people want. That's how people would approach Jesus. They don't, they don't, they don't bring the obvious need of their life and present it to Jesus. What they do is they bring what they really desire without having to go back to where they were. They want Jesus to wave the magic wand and put them in a castle with servants and slaves and all the food you could ever eat and never have to do lift a finger for anything ever again. And that's what they expect of Jesus, like he's got fairy dust that he just sprinkles on them. But this man answers the question that Jesus has been waiting to hear. Jesus is waiting for those sick that six-worded prayer that says, Lord, let me recover my sight. Now, in that, there is a determination of faith. There was no hesitation. There was no trepidation. There was no stammering in his response. It was clear and concise. I want my sight back. And such a request was music to Jesus' ear because it expressed faith, which was a delight for Jesus to respond to. Whenever there is an expression of faith, it's always a delight for Jesus to respond to our faith. That's what he does. 
And so the blind beggar knew the fame of Jesus. He had heard the stories of the healings. He had heard the story that Jesus had taken a boy's lunch and fed 5,000 men and and then the women and children on top of that. He heard about the dead coming back to life. So he knew that this man, the Messiah, was the only one who could restore his sight. So he said exactly what he needed. He asked without hesitation. And there's always spiritual healing and awareness when Jesus gets involved in our needs. What's your need? What's the greatest need of your life right now? Because I'll tell you, there is something that's connected to it that's spiritual as well. It may be physical. It may be monetary. It may be some, uh, some other thing. It may be relational. It may be your marriage. It may be your kids. It could be a, a hundred different things that you need help in, that you need healing in. But what Jesus is saying is, I'll take care of that, but I also want to take care of this. Because when he opened up that man's eyes, he, just, he didn't just open his eyes up to see physically. He opened his eyes up to see spiritually. Because we know that because of what it says. Because, and when he recovered his sight, he followed Jesus, glorifying God. That tells us that spiritually his eyes were open, and all the people, when they saw, gave praise to God. That's what happens when Jesus gets involved in our meat. Now we're going to go into our third person, found in Mark chapter 2. And it says this. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Let me just stop there. He had a new home. Remember, he couldn't do anything in his hometown. Most of the scholars that I've read agree that this, when it says home, is referring to Peter's home, that when Jesus was in Capernaum, that's where he stayed, with Peter and his wife, and his mother, Peter's mother-in-law. And many were gathered together so that there, were no, there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, in this healing, there are a number of things going on that we need to be aware of. 
on a really good day, it's really hard for me to keep my focus. And here's Jesus, poor Pete, poor Pete. He's sitting in there with Jesus, and all of a sudden, he starts to see something trickling down. And he looks up, and there's some guys that have ripped four little holes in his roof that are looking through, you know, and all he can see is their little eyeballs looking through, and they're going, yep, that's Jesus right down there. We're in the right spot. We're going to hit gold here, boys. Let's keep digging. And Pete's going like, my roof? What are you doing to my... I don't even fish for a living anymore. I follow Jesus. Jesus, you're going to have to fix this. And they tear the roof apart, and they let this man down right in front of Jesus. This guy, put yourself in his place. You cannot get up and run away. You can go nowhere. You're stuck on this mat. Matter of fact, we're not even sure that he consented to go to be healed. His four buddies just came along and said, Hey, Jesus is in town. We're taking you. And he's like, Hey, put me down. They go, Make me. Come on. It's not fair. And he's complaining as the four of these guys are carrying him. And they try to get in the front door. Nope. They look in the window. Nope. Can't get there. And one of the guys goes, the roof. And they go, the roof. And so they all run up to the roof. And they rip it apart. And then they find some rope up there. Pete shouldn't have had rope up there. And they tied the four corners of this thing together. And they lowered him right in front of Jesus. And here he is. And he's looking around. He's going, hey, what's up? What's up? And there's nothing he can do. And Jesus looks up. And he sees these four faces with grins from ear to ear, peering down at Jesus, going like, yeah, we did it. And when Jesus looks up at those guys, what does he see? Their faith. Their faith for their friend. We all need friends like that. We all need to have four good friends that have faith for us when we don't have it. That was amazing. And so Jesus looks at him and goes like, man, I am going to reward those guys up there for their faith for this guy. It wasn't on this man's faith. It was on their faith. And Jesus looks at him and goes like, all right, son, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. The guy's probably going like, wait a minute, that, I can't walk, you know? That's why I'm laying on the mat. No walkie, Jesus, no walkie. And Jesus is going like, hang on. And he forgives the man's sins. And then, of course, everybody else is freaking out, going like, hey, only God can forgive sins. Only God. And Jesus is going, uh-huh, that's right. Keep saying it. Only God can forgive sins. And what did I just do? I forgave sins. So if God can forgive sins and I forgave sins, that plus that equals, oh, Jesus is God. That's blasphemy. We'll kill you now. We'll kill you dead. And, and Jesus is just like, okay. And so what he does is, is he comes to the point where he's, he's taking the bold action of these four men for their, for their friend, and he helps them. And in verse 5, he saw their faith. Remember at the beginning of the talk? Jesus in his hometown, and because of unbelief, he could do nothing great. He could do no great miracles because of the unbelief. Here he has four guys filled with faith in what Jesus could do. And Jesus just looks over the edge. He looks down at this guy and he says, I am going to forgive your sins. 
There's a double miracle going on here. There's first of all the miracle of grace and then a miracle of power. Forgiveness came before healing. Forgiveness, keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that. Forgiveness came before healing. The man lying on the mat, lying helpless before Jesus, had the biggest issue of his life dealt with before the obvious issue of his life was dealt with. And after all of that, what is really important is so important that Jesus poses a question. It's about the soul, right? That's what Jesus is doing. He's healing the man's soul. And Jesus says later on, he says, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, the bigger issue that the man had no clue about was the condition of his soul. Because what is the use of all the physical healing in the world if there be no cure for the disease of the soul? It's all worthless. It doesn't matter one little bit if you're healed. Matter of fact, uh, one of my friends was telling me, we were talking about healing. This is about six months ago. We were talking about healing. And he was talking about his son who had broken his back and he had brought him to church and they laid hands on him and prayed for him for his son to be healed. And his son was healed and was skiing the next couple of days, like a week later. He, was, he had a broken back and he was back out skiing. God had miraculously healed his back. And you know what he said? That healing was all for naught because my son is not walking with Jesus. The healing, the healing doesn't mean anything if it doesn't touch the heart and turn them to Jesus. This man's life was changed because Jesus forgave his sins. Jesus took the prerogative that no one else could. He forgave the man's sin. And at that moment, Jesus healed the man radically with what the people around the room failed to see. And that was God manifested in the flesh, Jesus. To bring Jesus' power and authority together in one moment for all to see, Jesus heals the soul of the man, and then he heals the physical body of the man and commands him to take up his mat and walk. The mat, which was the sign of his sickness, is now the sign of his cure. The bed that had carried the man, now the man was carrying the bed, and the crowd, once blocking his path, when he was carried to the house, now makes a way for him to walk out with a cleansed soul and a thoroughly healed body. Jesus never leaves those whom he has pardoned under the paralyzing yoke of sin. When he frees us from its guilt, he delivers us also from its service. No one paralyzed by sin can be saved by someone else's faith, yet that one can be brought by another to Jesus who alone can deliver him. The cure for the disease of his soul. If you have someone who is paralyzed by sin and is helpless and is hopeless in his or her condition, then the one must be carried by four. Here are the four. Your consecrated life. That means holiness, holy life. Your compassionate love, your prevailing intercession, and your undaunted faith. Those are the four that have to carry them to Jesus. Because Paul told us in Romans chapter 5, for while we were still weak, weak, spiritually weak, we couldn't go anywhere. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
Here's my question. What's your view of Jesus? Because your view of Jesus determines the extent to which he will work in your life. Historical figure? Son of God, but 2,000 years old, kind of musty, old. Maybe to you, Jesus is just a carpenter's son, a carpenter. He's not real. He's real on the pages in the Bible, but he's not real in my heart. I know him up here, but I've never experienced him here. See, that's, that's what all three of these guys got from Jesus. They not only got this, they got this. They got it. They got what God had for them. In the first one, Jesus came to heal the sick and the lame, both physically and spiritually. And today we've seen Jesus come with healing where there was no request. This man had no idea Jesus was there. This guy had no idea what Jesus could do. This guy had no clue. He was expecting nothing from God. He was he said, this is my lot in life. This is where I will be. I will be here the rest of my life. I'm just going to make the best of what I've got. And Jesus comes along and sneaks up on him. And he says, not so fast, son. I've got something that you don't even know is coming. And it's going to change radically your life. You're no longer going to be a beggar. For the first time in your life, you're going to see the colors of the rainbow that I put in the sky. For the first time in your life, you're going to see the eyes, the deep blue eyes of your children. For the first time in your life, you're going to look at your mom and dad's face. For the first time in your life, you're going to see what the temple of God looks like. For the first time in your life, you're going to behold all of creation that I made for your eyes to behold. For my glory. There are some of you here who have stuff going on in your life. You have, you have resigned yourself to the fact that this is my lot in life. It will never change. Jesus can't do anything for me. Stop making your home, your heart, Jesus' hometown where he can't work because of unbelief. Open up and become Capernaum where Jesus can come in and he can heal your blindness and open up your eyes and give you something you never expected would happen. There are others of you that maybe for years... You've been crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy. Have mercy. And Jesus has been coming to you and he says, what can I do for you? And you never come with the right answer. You want something that Jesus says, that's not the best thing for you. You need to recognize what it is that God has for you. God's asking, Jesus is asking the question right now today in your life, what do you want me to do for you? And then, there's the faith of those around you. You may have a friend, you may have a family member, who has no, or little or no faith. And they need so much help and you just don't know what to do. You've tried everything. Now it's time. 
because they're paralyzed by sin. Now it's time to pick up their mat and carry the one paralyzed by sin to Jesus on your consecrated life, your compassionate love, your prevailing intercession, and your undaunted faith. That is how God will meet them. Amen? Here's what it all boils down to. Faith laughs at the impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. Faith laughs at impossibilities and cries, it shall be done. You know, this morning as we come to the table for communion, when Christ went to the cross, all those things that he did for those three guys that we met, and there were, there were hundreds more, thousands more. John says that the, we could not, there would be not enough ink or paper in the whole world for all of time to record everything that Jesus did. So we got to see the glimpse in three people's lives today. And when Jesus went to the cross, and that's what we're celebrating, because Paul tells us to remember, in remembrance of what Jesus did for us, by going to the cross, Jesus gave his body on our behalf. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. And in that, in Isaiah, it tells us by his stripes, by his blood, we are healed. We have healing in the atonement. Remember when I, I said earlier to, re, to remember the obedience part about healing? To obey? Because when you go to the book of James, John chapter 5, verse 17, it says that we are to confess our sins one to another so that what? We may be healed. You might have... It's, it's not just the physical healing. You might have emotional healing that you need to take place in your life. You might have financial healing that you need. You might have relational healing that you need. You might have uh, physical healing that's coming into your life. And maybe you've come before and you've had the elders anoint you with oil and pray for you and nothing's happened. Jesus works that way. He's saying, come again. He's, he don't, don't just come one. It's not one and done. It's not like you're rolling the dice or going down to the casino and you're taking everything you got and you're going like, let it ride. We're going to see what happens. Oh, shucks, I lost. I can never do it again because I gave everything there. Jesus is going like, hey, this isn't a gamble. You don't have to gamble. You're not gambling. What Jesus is saying is that you need to confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. If you want healing, confess. Now look, we're not here. I don't want... I'm not going to give you my microphone so you can come up here and confess. That ain't going to happen. But you do need to confess one to another. That means the person that you trust the most is sitting next door to you right now is the person you look to and you go like, I need to confess some sin. Would you hear it? I will hear it. And then when they confess the sin, here's what you say. You know what? I forgive you and God, Jesus forgives you too. We need to hear those words. Jesus forgives you. We don't hear them enough. And so this morning, when we take communion, I want you to think about what it is that's going to, what Jesus is calling you to do, because what Jesus did right here is he paid for all of that for you. He paid for your healing. 
Whatever that healing looks like, whatever need you have, he's paid for it. And he's just saying, come to the altar, come to the front, step out in obedience and come and find healing for your life. So what's going to happen is the worship team is going to come right now and we're going to step into communion and we're going to serve you communion. And as you're taking communion, you start asking Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Will you have mercy on me? Say, why not me, Jesus? Why not me? You healed those three people, the two blind guys and the, and the guy that was a paralytic. You healed them. Why not me? Why not me, Jesus? 